As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. I wouldn't say that I understand the idea of cryptocurrencies after listening to the excellent Naked Scientist show on the subject. Let's just say I'm a little bit less baffled than I was. And to be sure, it's a baffling subject. Cryptocurrencies involve mining, which is weird because they have no physical existence. They use more energy than a country like Sweden. But to what end? Building on the original Naked Scientist show and following Naked Reflections precedent, we thought we'd take a wider look at the implications of this puzzling technology. Here's Finn Branton speaking on the original show, Bitcoin Decrypted, Cash Code Crime, and power. One core premise of American, uh, most American libertarian ideologies is that money should, to some extent and in some way, be out of the control of states. The idea of sovereign central banks under the guidance of government issuing money is a danger, is a long-term threat. The promise of digital money was in many ways the opportunity to reinvent money in some new context. The challenge was always, well, then what is the money to be? Because of course, one of the best things that computers are good for is their ability to perfectly reproduce data, which is kind of a problem if the data that you're transacting is supposed to be money, right? Like in the most obvious kind of seemingly ludicrous sense. Why don't we just say like this string of characters corresponds to money? Well, therefore, I'm just going to control C, control V, um, that money over and over again and spend it as many times as I like. 
With me to discuss cryptocurrency are the producer of the original Naked Scientist program, Phil Sansom, whose interests vary from astrophysics to zoology, and the writer and cryptocurrency expert, David Gerard. One of David's books is engagingly entitled Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain and is incredibly popular. Phil, would you agree that, as the clip from the Naked Scientist show suggests, anarchy reigns in the cryptocurrency world? I think in a digital sense, like Finn was describing, no, because cryptocurrency is kind of the solution to the problem that he was just outlining. And in a way, they've sort of succeeded in creating uh, digital tokens that are valuable because they're scarce, that people can't get away with just copy pasting. They can't spend their coins twice over. There's this, these cryptographic checks in place. Uh, and so there are these kind of rules that are laid down in the code that govern the system. But in, in a social sense, is it governed by anarchy? I think it's guided by anarchy, yes. Uh, because, you know, as Finn just described, the stated goal of Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies is to break free of the control of central banks, the monetary sovereignty of states and, and their cash. So you can call it kind of libertarianism. You can call it anarchy. You can call it whatever you like. But the idea is to have almost like gold was a supply of money that isn't under the control of, of some single power. So Phil's given us that insight, David. Am I right in thinking that the original idea was based on the ancient art of cryptography, secret codes? The thing was, you can't understand Bitcoin without understanding that it was fundamentally political in motivation. The idea was it was created by extreme libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, like not just people who wanted a few less rules and a bit more freedom for business and freedom with your money and so on. They wanted total freedom, no government, absolute freedom to do what you like. And the government could not interfere in your transactions. That is, they didn't like being taxed. So to achieve this goal, they needed digital cash that had no central controller because it's easy to do digital money if you have a central authority. Like, this is how we do it right now. You have a card, it has your money on it, that's hooked to your bank account. Everyone in the UK knows how this works, but that wasn't good enough for them. So they thought, perhaps we can do some tricks with cryptography and come up with the technology that will do this. Um, so it took a while, and the guy who came up with this, Satoshi Nakamoto, no one knows who he actually is. By 2008, he'd worked out how to achieve this trick he used a lot of old technologies and he put them together in a particular interesting way. So technically, this is a really interesting trick, okay? He actually genuinely did an interesting thing. It turns out that's not the same as being a good idea or feasible. But he did actually achieve it to some degree for a limited time. Is this what blockchain is or am I getting confused? The actual blockchain, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's like an accounting ledger. You can only add new entries to. Okay, you can't go back and cross out old ones. There's cryptographic stuff in it that makes sure that if anyone ever altered a previous one, you could tell immediately. Now, that's a really old technology. Um, like it's like 40 years old. What they did then was they put a thing on it, a mechanism to decide randomly who could add the next transaction to the accounting ledger. And Satoshi decided he wanted to distributes the creation of Bitcoin. So people get fresh Bitcoins. And he made it hooked to adding new transactions to the blockchain. 
and he decided this by a process of random selection using Bitcoin mining, analogous with gold mining. They're not actually mining anything. What they're doing is they basically waste electricity competitively. That's what proof-of-work mining is. It's really proof-of-waste. They waste electricity competitively in a lottery. You generate lottery tickets as absolutely fast as you can, and if your lottery number works out correctly, you win the Bitcoins. And then the system makes it harder or easier to keep it at about one new block of transactions every 10 minutes. The trouble is that as more people join, the system slows down to keep it at one block every 10 minutes, which means it can go up to using an entire country's worth of electricity to achieve seven transactions a second worldwide, which is the same rate it ran at in 2009. It's literally the most inefficient payment system in history. And that's what I mean by the difference between an interesting idea and a good idea or a feasible idea. Does that make any more sense? <laughs> Phil's laughing in the background. I think we better unpack that laughter, Phil. No, it does make sense. I think one of the crucial insights to understanding how something like Bitcoin works is to realize that uh, a Bitcoin isn't a physical thing. They've solved this problem of how do you create a coin that you can't just control C, control V by making something that's not a coin. It's a set of accounts, exactly like David was saying. All there is, is the record of Phil sent David one Bitcoin. I mean, they're worth about 35 grand right now. So maybe not one Bitcoin, but one hundred hundredth of a Bitcoin. And the ledger is the blockchain, effectively. It's a record of who sent each other different amounts of, of Bitcoin. And the thing that David was just describing, this mining process, is how that ledger gets updated and how the energy that's wasted is wasted in making sure that people agree on what the actual ledger is and it doesn't go off in different directions. But that energy literally is wasted, right? It's spent doing a puzzle, a cryptographic puzzle that doesn't benefit anyone once it's solved. It's not like solving some kind of, I don't know, cure for cancer or some complex maths, maths thing that's going to advance the field. No, it, it's, it goes to nothing. And the more the price of Bitcoin goes up, the more energy gets wasted. This is literally true. The actual transactions, you could do them on an iPhone, on a 2007 iPhone, right? All the rest, a whole country's worth of electricity, they just set it on fire and send it up in carbon dioxide because you can make a profit doing so. It's like a sort of parody of capitalism where you start straight from Western resources to getting money without actually producing anything along the way, except it's real. My head is sinking at the thought of all this wasted electricity. It just seems outrageous that Correct. it's being wasted. Yet, why is nobody saying, stop, we shouldn't carry on like this? So it turns out that quite a lot of people are. People like me, for example. I've been saying this for quite a few years. It's recently come to prominence, particularly from about February 2021, when Elon Musk bought Bitcoins on Tesla's corporate credit card. And um, suddenly all the news coverage was saying, yeah, but Tesla's whole pitch is being ecologically friendly and doing the energy transition. And so, you know, I'd go on the press saying, yes, Elon, get with the program, mate. What are you doing? You know, it sort of spoiled Tesla's entire transition 
sort of pitch. The thing is that normal people don't worry much about Bitcoin. Hmm, looks like dumb nerd money where nerds rip each other off, which is true. But it also burns a country's worth of electricity. And when they find out, people get angry. I notice this a lot. They get angry. Now, it's their money. They can set it on fire if they like. And that's how the law stands. But it's a massive externality that people are very concerned about. I think if you talk to someone in the cryptocurrency community who is a true believer and you presented them with this problem, they'd either go, oh, well, it's worth it to have our independent money which, like David is saying, doesn't really work as money, but there you go. Or they'd say, look, Bitcoin is the past. That's the first cryptocurrency, and it's the worst. Um, and all the new ones are trying to do better. And they're moving to different systems where you don't have this consensus protocol, which is called proof of work, which is the thing that wastes electricity. Instead, we're going to have proof of stake. Whoever has a, a bigger stake in the currency owns the coins, gets a bigger chance of getting to decide how the ledger goes on. So there are alternatives. But people are really struggling to move to them. The second biggest cryptocurrency, Ethereum, has said for many years that we're going to move from proof of work, the energy wasting one, to proof of stake. And they've struggled. It's been a long time. They say they're going to do it soon, but it hasn't yet happened. David, I don't know if you'd agree. No, no that's quite correct. The thing about proof of stake is it's literally them's what has gets. Literally, it is plutocracy, one dollar, one vote. And it turns out that if your whole thing is the rich get richer, then it's hard to get other people on board with it. They've come up with alternatives like fancier versions of it. Um, there's one called distributed proof of stake, which sort of works, but rapidly descends into oligarchy. But even proof of work doesn't work. It doesn't actually decentralize the system. This is a thing that a lot of Bitcoiners won't admit. It re-centralized by 2014. Because this process of wasting electricity has economies of scale because they set the whole thing up as a sort of all the incentives are financial. But the thing capitalism is really efficient at is squeezing out economic inefficiency and wasting electricity has economies of scale. So therefore, the biggest crypto miners were more efficient and made more money. This meant that by early 2014, there were like just a few large Bitcoin pools all controlled by single people. And by mid-2014, one of them went over controlling more than half of the network. That would normally be game over. They own the Bitcoin now, except they didn't want to scare everyone off because, you know, they were making money. So they split into multiple pools and everyone pretends that it's fine now. But when you can have 80% of Bitcoin mining standing on a single stage at a conference, you've got a centralized currency, I think operationally centralized, even if legally they can say, we're decentralized, can't sue me, bro. Let's try and look at an alternative approach because you've articulated the, um, the dangers, if you like, of Bitcoin, the waste of electricity and so on. But of course, can it add to the, the need to rebuild trust in the financial markets? I mean, you know, during the crash in, in, in 2011-12, there was a sense that we'd lost our trust in, in the markets. We'd lost confidence in the financial markets. But is there the possibility that cryptocurrencies can help us regain that love or that trust in the financial markets? So I would say not. You see, crypto people throw around the word trust and trustless a whole not. But they are abusing jargon and they're equivocating really, really badly by doing so. Um, the word trust in terms of trustlessness in 
blockchain talk means only that one computer doesn't have to trust the output of another computer. They generalize this to the general English word trust in all its various shades of meaning, and it doesn't work like that. You know, you can't abuse jargon that way, but they totally do. It becomes a marketing term um, where it means whatever the person says that sounds like their Bitcoins will go up in price. So in terms of trust, it doesn't work because what happens when you set up a system with trustlessness in it, you attract people who can't be trusted because they can't go anywhere else. So since you could first change Bitcoins for actual money, it has been absolutely riddled with scammers, shonky operators, con men of every sort since you could first change it for money in 2011. We're going to discuss the element of criminality in the second half of this podcast, but I would like to hear whether uh, either of you think there's some positive element to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, or is it simply a negative? David, you've argued the case for the the negative feel. Anything that you can give us? I mean, this is where the idea of cryptocurrency comes from. Or not the idea, but this is where the motivation for the first of the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, comes from. It was created pretty soon after the 2008 financial crash. And I believe in the first block of Bitcoin's blockchain is a reference to the financial crash and how it kind of represents a failure of the current monetary system. And so if you're looking for something positive in the system, it really depends on your worldview. If you're someone whose trust in central banks has plummeted, If you're someone who looks around the world and sees fiat money, money that's not backed by, for example, gold, as being the root of all problems, then of course you're going to come to something like bitcoins. That's the new digital gold. And grab onto it because that's, in a way, free from the quote-unquote meddling control of these central banks. And a lot of people do think that. If you don't think that, then there's not much in there for you because it's an inefficient method of payment. The price fluctuates wildly, so it's not that good as anything but an asset to invest in. If you're not a believer, but you want to make a buck, it's gambling, but you might make a fair few bucks. So so there's that positive in there as well. So it, it just really depends on what you're looking for. It's very important to remember, Satoshi Nakamoto was, by everything I can tell, completely sincere, right? He wanted to do a good thing that would work and do a particular job, But all his ideas about money and economics were, frankly, bizarre and wrong. And none of this stuff works. It's very important to remember, Bitcoin is founded in economic ideas that don't work. Like, it tries to re-implement the gold standard, which we went off in the 1930s and finally killed in the 1970s because it literally just couldn't hold together anymore. You could not run a modern economy on a limited supply of money. It doesn't work. You need monetary policy. So the whole idea was to re-implement an old idea that had failed and say, no, it's good, actually. Um, Even the people who love gold, Austrian economics fans, they are very skeptical of Bitcoin itself because they don't want this weird digital ersatz. They want actual gold. But they'll talk to the Bitcoiners a lot and they get along well. But um, yeah, it's like they're a sort of very small subclass of the Austrian school economists. Basically, we're into crackpot economics territory here. Let's be absolutely clear on this. All these ideas are weird, dumb, and wrong. 
You know, <laughs> they ask the right questions like, why didn't a whole lot more bankers go to jail in 2008? Which is a very good question. A lot of people asked it, but their answers are basically wrong and don't work. And in their attempts to de-intermediate the financial system, they've recreated all the intermediaries. They've got banks, except they're rubbish. They've got lending, except it's rubbish. They've re even re-implemented a central bank that prints money, except it's rubbish. I want my listeners to know that we are not crackpots. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Phil Sansom and David Gerrard, and we're talking cryptocurrencies. Whatever highfalutin rationalizations investors and financial wizards might dream up to justify this system, the South African criminologist Eva Reddy is not buying it, neither the reasoning nor the currency. Basically, buyers and sellers of illicit products and services such as weaponry, illegal narcotics, stolen databases, malware, typically rely on cryptocurrency because it helps conceal transactions. Uh, it is actually therefore not surprising that cryptocurrencies have become the payment of choice when it comes to electronic commerce on the dark web. David, I think this reinforces your point that cryptocurrency was almost designed for criminality. Is that your view? That's pretty much the system they come up with, because if you design a system, even with the best of intentions where governments can't touch your money, the people that attracts is crooks. So the very first actual payment use case for Bitcoin was buying drugs on the darknet. Or if we want to be more neutral about it, buying things your government doesn't want you to. Now, again, that's a reasonable thing to want, because sometimes governments are very stupid and foolish. Who wants someone looking over their shoulder all the time? Nobody. It turns out that they went full on into the uh, drug market. It sort of went a bit funny there because it turned out even the drug dealers hated Bitcoin because it went up and down in price so much. It was very brittle to deal with because you had to be basically a cryptographic expert to handle the stuff and not lose it. Um, and when the price was so volatile, it would mess up deals between making a deal and getting the drugs delivered. And drug dealers are not known for their patience or forbearance. Yeah, it's become a currency of the dark nets. And that's a real problem. Like we've recently, this year especially, had large scale ransomware attacks hitting a lot of corporations, not even just small ones for a few hundred dollars, ones for millions of dollars. The only way they could get that money is through cryptocurrency, which is why there have been serious calls to ban or at least limit the convertibility of cryptocurrency to and from actual money because they can't think of another way to cut off the payment system for ransomware. Phil, in your research for the program on Naked Scientists, did you come to the conclusion that there should be a ban on cryptocurrency or is that too extreme? I think it's extreme and I, I don't think it's realistic because unless you ban the internet, then I, I'm, I'm not sure how you could get away with it. Uh, I mean, you could clamp down on it, but it would be extreme. And it would, honestly, the, the sector is so huge, depending on how you implemented it. A lot of people would suddenly be doing something illegal uh, out of nowhere. I think, like David was saying, that one of the biggest issues is the kind of financial craziness. The fact that you've essentially got a, a structure that almost mirrors the uh, physical or, or fiat money financial system in a perverse way where you've got central banks, banks, shadow banks, uh, effectively, institutions on top of those that are creating next layer financial instruments that they're then trading that turn into more instruments, 
all that stuff is kind of a financial wild west. And, you know, that's not to say that our current financial system in, quote unquote, the real world isn't a wild west, which it still sort of is. But it definitely deserves regulation. And so does the financial world of cryptocurrencies, in my view. How would it be regulated? I mean, if we're saying it's not possible to ban, and there are a number of countries, not least China, that's talked about banning um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, how would it be possible to regulate it effectively? I think a ban is very unlikely. But what is happening, and this is in progress right now, is increasing regulation on the gateways to and from actual money. Because the Bitcoin system does not generate economic value. It doesn't generate wealth. Like a big pile of Bitcoins is not capital that you can invest and build something with, right? It is literally just a pile of commodity that you can buy or sell or hold on to or whatever. So no dollars come out that didn't go in. There's no economic wealth being generated there. So it's just a token for dollars or pounds or whatever, but mostly dollars because everyone in crypto thinks in US dollars. So what they're doing is they're really, really clamping down on the gateways to and from actual money. Um, there's a whole bunch of new rules. The Financial Action Task Force issues guidance to countries on how to implement uh, anti-money laundering regulations. And countries that don't follow this guidance, it's not law, but if you don't follow it, you're excluded from the system and no country wants that. Because if no one will do business with you, then you've crippled your trade and you don't want to be a rogue state. So that regulation is kicking in now. A lot of crypto exchanges around the world are discovering that they're no longer welcome in a lot of countries. Binance is one of the biggest crypto exchanges. They have suddenly in the last couple of months had a lot of trouble all around the world as regulators say, look, this is the new rules. Can you keep them? No, you can't. Sorry, you're out of here. A whole bunch of UK banks have been cutting off access to Binance for UK customers to the sterling currency system, that sort of thing. So I expect that the way it will be regulated is increasingly the money laundering cops will come in and clamp down and make sure that even though you can buy and sell cryptos, you will absolutely have every step of it recorded along the way and it'll all be sent off and filed. And it's crucial to realize that most cryptocurrency transactions aren't totally cryptographically secure. They talk a big game, but a lot of people can track these flows of money across blockchains. That's easy to do. You can just look up the blockchain, find a blockchain explorer online, and it'll say, this was sent to this. It'll be strings of letters and numbers rather than people's names. But those aren't cryptographically perfectly secure either. And there's a whole trade of people that make their business in tracking who sent what to who. And that's why some of this anti-money laundering legislation could, in theory, work because this stuff is traceable. That gives me some grounds for hope, Phil, that it's traceable and that there's the possibility of regulation. But it also goes against what you've told me what uh, the cryptocurrency is, that it's a, a secret way of transferring money. So they don't seem to sit together comfortably. It's not secret. It's just not centrally controlled. It is not anonymous. It's pseudonymous. If you leak your name being linked to an address, then you can be traced. This is something that was called very early, by the way, when the Silk Road the first darknet market started up in 2011, one of the Bitcoin developers, Jeff Garzik, was asked by the press, but won't they be revealing themselves? He said, yes, this is very stupid. What are you doing? This didn't stop them. <laughs> like, it turns out that if you're going to do crimes, then you probably shouldn't do them on a permanent public ledger of all transactions. 
I think Naked Reflections listeners will be pleased to hear that, David. Why did Facebook get involved? So I literally wrote the book on this one. Facebook came along and they went, we want to do a cryptocurrency because this was started by a team of four Bitcoin enthusiasts inside Facebook. And they thought they'd like to use Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is too volatile and hard to use. So they thought we have to start our own because it's just going to be currency, you know, and we'll back it and so forth. They were inspired by the fact that payment systems are basically very hard to use if you're in the US because US consumer banking is very bad. It's clunky. It doesn't work. They still use paper checks. So they went, we've got a new system for the whole world and we can't implement this without doing a whole cryptocurrency ourselves. So they offered the following, quote, paying bills with a push of a button. Buy a cup of coffee with a scan of a code or riding your local public transport without needing to carry cash or a metro pass, unquote. So I'd like our UK listeners to imagine if they could have done all of those things since about 2012. Unthinkable. Amazing. You just have to turn the world upside down to have this basic thing we've had for at least 10 years. So it's like they started from a position of assuming the world was exactly like it was outside their window in Palo Alto and generalizing that to revolutionizing the world We'll bank the unbanked. They always say that one. And I don't know what they were thinking. Mark Zuckerberg liked the idea. I would fairly confidently state that his motivation, like with everything he does, was to mount a giant data miner upon all of consumer commerce and get everyone's data on their spending habits. We touched upon the possibility of regulation, uh, the criminality, but we haven't touched on whether this is a financial bubble that will crash like so many financial bubbles. So I wonder if that's another way that the cryptocurrencies will be found out. Is that likely, Phil? I've talked to people who think differently. I've talked to economists who go either way on, on the topic. I talked to an analyst who'd been looking closely at the Bitcoin market, and he said, well, you know, there's so much mainstream investment now, and so much of Bitcoin is owned by people who own huge amounts. They call them whales. And these whales aren't just going to sell as soon as the price drops because they've got a long-term investment and they're going to provide some stability to the market. Then again, a few months ago, one Bitcoin was worth 50, 60 grand in dollars. Today, in the region of 35 grand, which is a big crash, potentially was in a bubble. You could, you could also argue that the whole thing is sort of a bubble because as David has mentioned, there's not really any quote-unquote, real economic activity underlying all this buying and selling. And the thing has no intrinsic value as kind of a commodity or anything. So it, it's entirely possible that the price of Bitcoin could drop to zero. It's, it's hard to predict. So I would say, yes, it was absolutely an asset bubble. And in fact, the bubble is calming down and it matches every economic asset bubble there's ever been. I'm using the definition of economic asset bubble, which is where ordinary people start buying in on the assumption that they can sell to someone else for more. It was not until Elon Musk announced Tesla buying Bitcoins in February 2021 that you saw actual normal people putting money into Bitcoin. Like, that's what the actual data shows. And that is when you started to hear about people talking in pubs about their Ethereum portfolio or whatever. Those people have calmed down a lot lately. so. At the moment, the price of Bitcoin is a bit like Wiley Coyote's run over the cliff and he hasn't noticed gravity yet. 
Bitcoin is sort of in midair, waiting until it notices gravity, and it will probably crash sometime, but I can't predict when. And after it crashes, probably it'll come back in a few more years because some people just want to buy into something that's a get-rich-quick scheme. 20 years ago, they would have been buying into ostrich farms. This year, it was Bitcoins. Next year, who knows what scam they'll get into and get sucked into. And basically, this is why we have financial regulation on investments. There we must leave it. I can confirm that no Bitcoin payments were made in preparation of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, Phil Sansom and David Gerrard. And thank you for listening. You know where to find us and we'd love to hear from you. Our back catalogue of discussions, more than 90 podcasts to date, is there for you to dip into. I'll be back next week with more thoughts about things that matter. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.